0: hello i'm jennifer thompson
1: and i'm chad thompson
0: and we are your hosts of the The Premise. premise where we get to the story behind the storyteller and this season four that's right we're in season four we've got some amazing storytellers lined up and we really appreciate you listening be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening let's roll
1: autobots roll out
0: Hello, and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson, and I'm here with... Chad Thompson. My fabulous producer and comic relief, yeah, only my (laughs) husband. Going on 24 years, folks, we managed to have a podcast and be married and work together, and it works. Does it? (laughs) Today, we are super, I am super excited to have our guest, Jesse Leon. Jesse, welcome to The Premise.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today. Oh,
0: oh my gosh. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Your book is just absolutely, uh, I I don't think I have enough words to describe it. It it is so vulnerable and so raw and so real and so important. The message is fantastic. And we're going to dive into that, folks. But first, let me tell you a little about Jesse Leone. Jesse Leon is the award-winning bilingual author of I'm Not Broken and No Estoy Roto. He's a TEDx speaker, that's TEDx San Diego, folks, motivational speaker, certified executive coach, consultant to philanthropy and social impact investors, and a Lamba Literary Award finalist. Jesse received his bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley and master's degree from Harvard University. And today we are here to talk about... I'm not broken. Again, welcome.
1: <laughs> thank you for having me, especially being a San Diego born and raised individual in the unceded territory of the Kumeyaay Nation.
0: Woo-hoo! <laughs> nice, thank you. <laughs> you know, when I was reading this book and there's I know the city so well. I've been in San Diego. We were talking about this before the interview since 1989. I grew up in San Diego, really. I moved here when I was 18. And so San Diego is my home. You know, I may not have been born here, but, you know, this is where my heart is. And I knew all the corners and all of the places mentioned in the book. And it felt really, I don't know, like I was there with you. I could see the buildings and the streets, and it just made it that much more impactful, I think. This book must have been. Hard to write.
1: Extremely. Mm. Extremely hard to write.
0: For those of you listening, I just want to give you some, just a warning. There's going to be some triggers. We're going to talk about some things that are difficult. There was abuse, sexual abuse, and things that happened to Jesse when he was a child that it's hard to believe anyone could walk away from and then become, you know, a Harvard graduate and turn your life to helping the planet. You know, for social justice and mental health, and you know, all the things that you do to give back is just incredible. And you're just an incredible human being, Jesse. I'm sure you probably hear this a lot, but you know, for our listeners, um, if that's too hard, I get it. This book is fantastic, it's amazing, it's important, but it's deep. You go there, you bring us to the moment when you are, as an 11 year old child, essentially sex trafficked. Um, not essentially, literally, and I wondered as I was reading. You know, the the beginning is brilliant because you take us to a place where your mama, your your ama, your mom, is sad because you got accepted to this far away college called Harvard. <laughs> She's so upset, right, that her baby's leaving, and she works in a school, and the teachers are like, "Wait a minute, where did he get accepted to?" And then she realizes like, this is a big deal. Like, this is important. So we start knowing you're gonna be okay. And that's important for the book. It's important for the reader. Talk to us about the process of laying the words down on the page and that beginning. Was that always the beginning? Did you edit that in? Like, tell us about your process
1: great catch and and thank you for taking the time to read the book and i knew when i started writing my memoir i'm not broken that i wanted to start it and end it at harvard graduation Mm, Um, i knew that the journey of taking the taking the reader through my journey was gonna be a ride
2: yeah. And
1: a ride that was going to bring up lots of emotions, not just in me, but in, in my readers. And I wanted to start off with a very powerful scene, which is Chicano from the barrio graduating from Harvard University and what it took to get there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the, the image that it, that it brings up. Right, and so um, I knew that that's what I wanted. I wanted to start it and end it at Harvard graduation. Sadly, it was I wasn't able to talk about what came after. Right, so I'm hoping that that would be a book too. What mm, happened yeah. um, after Harvard, mm-hmm. and and the uh, the professional journey and the ups and downs. But yeah, I, I knew that 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 was um what I wanted. That that was a vision that came to me and. Yeah.
0: It's really important because it'd be it'd be tough to read this book if we don't know you're gonna be okay. I mean, you know the person's gonna be okay because they're writing the story, but you know, to know that you made it to a place that, you know, is really revered in this country. And I think for the reader, it keeps you going. Like how does he get out of this and get to (laughs) that? You know, like you can't stop turning the page. And in the beginning, you know, I'll be honest, it was hard. It was hard to read those things that were happening. And like, you also did this thing, and I don't know if you did this, but in the beginning, the writing is a little more raw and almost a little more juvenile. It feels like it's coming from the perspective of that child.
1: Yes. (laughs) I, I really tried to work with little Jesse and give voice to little Jesse and which was painful
2: mm.
1: cathartic, healing at the same time especially reading the audiobook was was very healing for me but you know when 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 listeners read when listeners when people listen to the audiobook and they they're capturing the emotion and I lost it a mm-hmm. uh, number of times, reading both English and Spanish, and um, but I want to go back to what you said, and and I get this a lot, and so in interviews where people say it was hard to read, and I ask what made it hard to read.
0: Mm, are you asking me now?
1: Because to me, let me let let me follow it up with because. Um, someone that's had to deal with issues of self-esteem, issues of feeling less than, not good enough. Sometimes when I hear in interviews someone say, "Oh, it was hard to read," my brain immediately takes it to the academic aspects of it lacked character development, it, lacked <laughs> character. Right. it, it, it bored yeah. me, it dragged on, and I think what people say was. It brought up a lot of emotions for me that Mm -hmm. I either had to put it down and step away. Mm -hmm. So then I challenged my interviewers to think about, you know, are you saying that it was gut-wrenching? It was heart-wrenching, and it took me on a journey of emotions.
2: Mm. Um, My head
1: immediately takes me to a negative place of of criticism, right? As opposed to um, diving deeper to the emotional aspects of the reader.
0: You know... I'm going to answer your question, but that was one of my questions is, do you still find yourself criticizing and judging? Because you judge others coming from a place of, you know, judging yourself in this book a lot. You assume that they're thinking the worst of you. And this is an example of that, but you're right. I need to be more specific in the way I say it. No, it wasn't hard to read because it's a bad book or it was poorly written. It was emotionally hard to read because. I wanted to save Jesse. And you, this this little boy, this 11 year old, you know, your mom is doesn't speak English. So she doesn't have agency in a lot of ways. She doesn't have help. Your father is older and abusive and useless in a lot of ways. And yet you still respect him and look up to him and want his approval, which we all do. I mean, my father was incredibly abusive and all i wanted to do was make him proud right that's just who we are and so i just saw this little boy who when these these things are happening to him i can't save him and it's so difficult to read emotionally because i just can't imagine being in that position and knowing you made it through that you know it's just to, to think that humans are so awful to other humans is one I, I just I was talking to a client yesterday who is from um, Uzbekistan and he his life was incredibly difficult. His entire family, except for his grandmother, were shot to death in two days in Kiev. Wow and he managed to escape to Israel where he ate bread and sour cream and an onion every day for more than a year because that's all he could afford to eat. And I'm like, what is wrong with humans? Like I just I don't have hatred in me and I just I can't imagine Treating other humans like that, and not loving people, and yet Jesse, you—I've met you a couple times in person, and you have the biggest smile and the biggest <laughs> hug for others around you, and people you've never met, you just hug them and you love them, and you and you you put off this. And I don't know if this is—you've had to work on this. As, this is who you always were. So reading this book was very interesting to me because the person I met you know, in the person who you tried to be in this book, to your armor, as you call it in the book, to protect yourselves, yourself, you know, you've taken off that armor and you have nothing but love for people. And like you answer everyone's questions and you are just so willing to like be open and vulnerable and helpful. And I just find it extraordinary.
1: <laughs> I'm smiling from ear to ear. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that 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 was a major part of my journey was to allow others in, mm-hmm. allow others mm-hmm. to love me. Yeah. Um, loving myself was and sometimes is, you know, part of the journey. If if you looked at my bathroom mirror, there's post-its all over it of positive affirmations that I tell myself every morning. I bought a t shirt. Um, I made a T-shirt with the image of 10-year-old nerdy little Jesse with the words worthy on top of it. And I try to wear it when I go speak to remind myself that I am worthy. I do belong here and allow others not just to love me, but, you know, to be open to others' journeys as well. Um, You know, I wrote my book to inspire others that are struggling with identity, addiction, suicidal thoughts, Mm. that we're not alone. And that in spite of our painful realities that we can accomplish anything and thrive that so that our youth don't kill themselves. And our families see that in spite of the horrors of addiction and the painful circumstances we experience that that we too can accomplish anything.
0: You mentioned in the book something that really resonates with me, this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, that's what America is built on, which is a bunch of bullshit. You can't pull yourself up by bootstraps. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, like gravity isn't going to allow that to begin with. It, but you mentioned like, you know, people say that to you often, like, oh, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. And you're like, no, I didn't. I had a network. I had people who love me and helped me. Talk to us more about this, like, this construct of bootstraps and like what you think of that.
1: It was an entire community of people and sometimes individuals at times that I couldn't even see it that were rallying behind me trying to point me in the right direction it's what i call these moments of magic where you know my mom's um (laughs) my moments of magic where looking back Mm. i can see that the love and support of people that just wanted to help me but didn't know how and I didn't make it to Harvard or UC Berkeley or community college or, you know, getting clean and sober on my own. It was community. And to the, to this day, it's still community. It's, it's those around me that I call when I'm not, when I'm feeling down um, that pull me out of it sometimes. And so um, there were no bootstraps. You don't even know where to buy the boots. you know, yeah, and you so, don't even
0: have boots, let boot alone so
1: yeah. when I hear that, it's 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 a very much an individualistic ideology, and and I don't come from that. I mm-hmm. come from a family where the family unit is really strong. The intergenerational aspects of our family, especially in the, in indigenous cultures, it's, it's the family and the family dynamic. And so um, it's about us. It's about we. Mm-hmm. And so I can't afford to start thinking that I did this. This is all me. Um, <laughs> then I'm an ego. And as soon as I, think, I start thinking that it's all me, I did it. I got this. I run the risk of even relapsing and thinking that, well, maybe I can go have another drink. I'm doing this. I don't need anybody else. I can go do another line of coke. And, and that's, that's not my reality.
0: Yeah. And there's so many people out there who have that same reality. <laughs> and the, there's, this fine, there's this line in the book where in the beginning I felt like every adult and every person of power in a, in a position of power let you down. A hundred percent from the from the school counselors to the paid the person who was paid to be your therapist did not do anything to actually help you it was it was absolutely appalling to me to see the system be so broken and whether that was a result of racism, um, they didn't feel like you were good enough because you were brown, I don't know, because your mom didn't speak English, like I, the teachers, no one, the cops, like everyone you dealt with, although I guess there were two cops who did seem to have some softness toward you. But then you crossed this line and you entered, you know, recovery, and all of a sudden there were all these people who like wanted to hug you and saw you, who you, who you were. And like this, like, what was it you who changed and allowed them to help you? Or was it truly the demarcation of that moment?
1: I think it was, it was multiple factors. Um, You're right about being a child and the system in essence fading I, my journey should not have required me as a child transitioning to adulthood to navigate the mental health system alone
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and facing so many cultural barriers. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: I wanted to like strangle that woman for not allowing your mom to be part of your, you know, your process to not allowing your mother to even be in the room or speak to her. I mean, it was just, I want to find her and take her license away. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it,
1: it, it was horrible because back then we didn't, there were different terms used. And I guess in terms of social work, I would have been considered a rescue back then. Mm-hmm. The reality was was I was handed off. There was no follow-through. There was no no one from the state called to check up on me or my family to say, are you getting the adequate treatment? Hey, how's it going with your therapist? Did you know you can change therapists if mm-hmm. the one that's been assigned to you isn't meeting your needs? Yeah. Um, there should be a mechanism in place to follow up with clients, with individuals, with survivors, to they, to ensure that they're receiving quality access to mental health. And if not, redirect those individuals to the appropriate, gender affirming, multilingual, culturally mm-hmm. competent mm-hmm. care. Right. Um, and so there was no follow-up there was no oversight there was no accountability and and i think that is what's needed especially for survivors and our families where when our families are a part of that process of healing and so it when i look back how is it that as a 14 year old kid once my perpetrator disappeared and I turned. I'm. I'm. I, I. I'm assigned this therapist by the state. And how do you go from being a 14 year old kid, 18 year, to 18 years old? Um, she knew about the drug use. I turned to street prostitution. She knew
0: about that. That's even a
1: bad choice of words. I was a sexually exploited child in the commercial sex industry of the streets of San Diego.
2: Yeah.
1: From 14 to
2: 18.
1: Yeah. And what they call survival sex to support my drug habit
2: mm-hmm.
1: all the while going to therapy. <laughs> how, how, how can you live with yourself as a therapist knowing that you see this child and you never doing what he's doing and you never once recommend drug and alcohol treatment. Yeah. You know, I didn't know about the McAllister Institute until I got clean. I didn't know about Phoenix House until I got clean. I didn't know that I could even change therapists until I got clean. And other people in recovery told me. And, and I learned. And, and, and there was a lot of anger. And there was a lot of resentment. And there was a lot of healing that had to be done um, about, around that. And a lot of resentment, a lot of resentment of, wow, had I come from a a family that was not poor, that were not immigrants, would the adequate resources been recommended to me as they are for so many other families? And even getting clean young at at 18 years old, there weren't many young people of color knocking down the doors of recovery.
0: You didn't
1: see that like we do today.
0: Well, and culturally too, I mean, Mexican culture is like, you know, you don't talk about those things, right? Like you handle it in the family. So am I am I right about that?
1: <sighs> to some extent, um, part of the reason in writing my book and part of the reason I'm telling my story is to destigmatize um, reaching out uh, to mental health providers.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: to to destigmatize um, addicts. Yeah. That 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 hope is possible. That change is possible. Yeah. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, yes, I have to agree with you that a lot of these topics are just not discussed in our communities.
0: You do a really good job of not showing your resentment, like. I'm I'm resentful for you but you you never blamed others really. I mean you show us what happened so we know what happened. We know that they failed you. But you never tell the story in such a way that it feels like you're like, well, if you know, it's because of this and these people. Like you take ownership of the choices you made regardless of the fact that you had no choice when you were 11 and these things happened to you. I want to to ask how the editing, was the editing process part of that? Were you cognizant of the fact that, you know, when you finally got down to be like, this is going to be a book? Because my assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you, you journaled first, then decided to write a book. Okay, I have so many questions. Let's start over. <laughs> when did you decide this was going to be a book? Like really decided, you know what, I'm going to tell my story.
1: So I wrote the book not thinking I would ever publish it. I, um, I had a family member that was struggling. I saw the signs of anorexia and I wanted to have a conversation with this family member and share my story because for a long time I suffered with bulimia. It was edited out of the book. I was bulimic for a long time because being a survivor of sex trafficking and childhood sexual abuse, my validation came from my body and what you thought of me. And if anything, that that was the only thing I was good for mm. was sex and, um, and the use of my body. And so it was how I maintained going to the gym and, 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 and binging and purging. And, and that was never talked about from a male perspective.
2: Sure. Um,
1: And so I wanted to share my story with this family member. And I was told that I couldn't that um, that I couldn't I I wasn't allowed to disclose my story to this to this person in the family. And 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 I said, okay, well, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to put it on paper. And as a matter (laughs) of fact, I'm not only going to put my story on paper, but I'm going to go back three generations on both sides of the family. And I'm going (laughs) to lift up the stories of the women in the family Mm. to demonstrate the resilience and the power of women, um, keeping their families together and their journeys into this country. So that should anyone of a future generation in my family go through challenges where they want to give up where they feel less than where they feel that they just can't make it one more day that they have a documented story of family of resilience um to show that we can go from surviving to thriving holy shit! and so that's
0: amazing
1: and so 700 pages into it single spaced i then thought oh wow I have this, 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 I have 700 pages of blah of emotions on paper. And so then I started editing and, and, you know, I've been, I'm in recovery. I just celebrated 30 years and I I'm a public speaker. I speak at, you know, conventions and, um, all over the world. And so I would have people come up to me crying after I'd speak, they'd hug me and they'd say, you should write a book and I think well I already have these 700 pages <laughs> so <laughs> I said well maybe I should start looking for an agent. Uh maybe I should find out how how to go from you know what I what I've written to publishing it. Um and that was an entire journey in and of itself. Um the book publishing process which we could talk about later if you want.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I mean a lot of our listeners are are writers. And so that's going to be an am- Interesting piece. And that was totally one of my questions as we hear about your father's family and your mother's family, and they're so tragic. And the women, you know, there's definitely this like, this power, this resilience. There's something you say that at the end of your book, that, you know, the grass seems greener elsewhere on the other side of the fence, as I grew up hearing it. Mm -hmm. And you're like, no, the grass is greener where you tend it. (laughs) <laughs> and I just stopped for a moment and I was like, yeah, that is so good.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
0: So, um, yeah, I was, that's how the stories come to be about you know, ancestors and, you know, where you come from. and you know, Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. And I love how it, at first I was like, oh, interesting. Here's an interesting tidbit. You know, part one, we hear about your father. Part two, we hear more about your father. And then part three, I believe we, hear, we start hearing about your mother and your grandmother in particular. So those moments with, you know, hearing the, the family stories, you, you mentioned like your, your father talked about these stories, but sort of in loose terms. Like tell us more about, you know, learning about the family history as a child and how that impacted you
1: storytelling is just so important in communities of color and in particular indigenous communities for a long time you know my grandma did not write my grandma didn't read she was illiterate Um, my mom's mom and so and she was full-blooded uh huichol or half huichol half kora so full-blooded indigenous and so a lot of my journey a, a lot of growing up is you hear these family stories and it's just part of growing up. And, and you would hear stories when I'm helping my mom in the kitchen and, and mm. the cousins are, are over it and, and the storytelling that happens. So there's an author that says it's all in the beans. <laughs> and so when you're uh, sitting, uh-huh. <laughs> when you're sitting at the table, separating the good beans from the bad beans, Los Frijoles and, 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 taking out rocks and, and from the, from the bags of beans that you buy at the store and you got to make sure they're clean. And as you're separating that, you, you, you hear the conversations as a kid and and they just would fill me with joy. And so before my dad died, I would, I would ask him questions and stories of the family. And, and sadly he died um, with uh, Alzheimer's. And so a lot of his, the stories you know prior to him dying he he would speak in Yaki, um the Yaki nation and he would speak in Yaki. And, and and i'd ask other family members it was kind of what can i say this it was affirmation to some of the stories that i would hear about his childhood when he was kidnapped by by the Yaki nation um in 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 one of the battles that 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 happened in 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 that generation of, and when they got to the to the border area of Mexicali, but it was just powerful and empowering, and I knew that I wanted to document some of those stories because there are also so many other readers, Latino readers in particular, have have sent me messages on Instagram on social media via email saying thank you for including the stories of family.
2: Yeah. It
1: reminded me of my family. Mm. It reminded me of sitting with my abuelita <laughs> and having my abuelita tell stories of of growing up in old Mexico.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, storytelling is so important. It gives us place too and these stories. Well, I'm curious I wanted to ask you, did you record your father? Did you get his voice on tape?
1: I did. I, uh, <laughs> I recorded his voice on tape. I have some videos of of my conversations with my dad, and you know that that that's just what's the word that they say in American Express commercials. That's um, priceless. Priceless. Oh <laughs> I can't believe you would you would tarnish such a beautiful thing with uh, with American with, Express, American Express. <laughs> with <all> commerce. <laughs> <laughs> we can edit that out. We can edit that out. No, it's funny, right? But it, it it's priceless because I also know that you know my grand my grand nieces are not gonna know, and so I wanted to capture all of that. What I want to do is I want to digitize a lot of those conversations that were on tape, um, and figure out a way to get those to make those into digital files so that future generations can actually hear the stories from both my mom and my dad. Wonderful. Um, yeah. In my in their voice.
0: Great idea. Did the family member who needed this story, did she get it or he get it? Did oh, they yeah. get it? Oh my yeah. god.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She got it. She's good. She's oh my God. Um yes premed uh san diego state anyways i won't say anymore she no 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 she's she's a queen in her own right and is going to change the world in her own way and it's beautiful to see this person blossom to the powerful woman she has become and find her own power <laughs> from within that that is oh my god yeah
0: nice nice <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about hope and faith. They oh. both they both appear in your book. And it occurred to me that those are probably not their real names.
1: No, I changed everybody's names to for protection. Yeah. Which a lot of people don't understand what I mean when I say protection. But oh. when you're raised in certain communities, mm-hmm. other authors in the previous version through the editing process, uh, I had everyone's real name and I had other authors reach out to me and say, you may want to change the names because you're gay. And sadly, um, it'll be dangerous for you. Yeah. You need to protect others.
0: Absolutely. So I did.
1: But yeah, that wasn't their name. And, and I, I try to capture themes of names, hope, faith, joy. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, even Nia and Maya, their names, you know, mean something different in in other languages, similar to hope and faith.
0: When I met faith, I was like, Oh, right at the right time too. I was (laughs) like, that's that's super cool.
1: (laughs) She's still in my life. We, we talk every day. Um, yeah. And joy um wow joy was my second mom Mm. joy was joy was my second mom and may she rest in peace um she changed the lives of so many students in san diego at san diego high and she believed in me (laughs) she never blamed my mom yeah and that was the most beautiful relationship to see a white woman who externally, exter- you know, on her exterior looks, you know, very manicured, always had her nails done, her hair perfectly done, nice makeup, very manicured, right? And, and didn't speak Spanish, never once blamed my mom and the two of them together, I got to say, were when I was down and out, really supported each other and did their best to love me and find me the resources that I needed. Yeah, Roy was my second mom. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It changed my life.
0: Nice. Yeah, you had like, you know, so many people and they were always, well, they weren't always women, but, you know, people who just came out and showed you this love despite the fact that you weren't ready for it. You know, little Jesse and teen Jesse didn't want to accept that, didn't want to see that. And there were, but every once in a while, people would break through and it's beautiful. Yeah. You're so right. (laughs) And there's this thing that you said a couple of times, like, oh my God, this person sees me. Like that must've made you feel very vulnerable, but also hopeful
1: hopeful, but also vulnerable. And, and sometimes you rebel against it. Right. That's why it's I easier, don't. Right? It, yeah, it's easier, right? Yeah. It, it's easier to want to push people away. And because also when you deal with issues of abandonment uh, and you don't trust others, it's easier to want to keep people away. And so uh, Z, one of the characters in the book, he's now a teacher in LA and we connected. I hadn't seen him Oh my gosh since high school graduation i think and he showed up at a book signing that i did in la at skylight (laughs) books awesome and i saw him in the audience mid-question and i just i i stopped and i ran to him (laughs) and i just wrapped him in my arms Mm. and we cried and i was able to say thank you for believing in me Um, as a recruiter to try to get students to consider going to, Latino students to consider going to college. So for those listeners that sometimes feel that you're not having an impact and you're not... You're not creating the chains that you'd like to see. You're planting the seeds and you never know how those seeds are going to blossom. And I'm actually going to go in May to speak to one of his, to his high school class. And I'm going to read the parts of the book about Z and how important he was for me as one of the first Latinos, uh, Latino men who believed in me and told me that he saw me. Because a lot of times I just wanted to be seen
2: Mm -hmm.
1: for me without any type of transactional relationship that you genuinely care and don't want anything from me.
0: Yeah. And it was really helpful for you at key points to see people who looked like you.
1: You Oh my gosh. Definitely.
0: In fact, Z was one of those people, you know, and the security, I think it was at Roosevelt, um, the security officer who was also Latino was like what's going on you know he was like the first person to ask what's happening something's not right
1: they allowed they even though i didn't the police officer i did disclose and and i can look at the positive as opposed to the negative Mm -hmm. because for a long time i was also angry with him with the police officer I felt that he also was part of the problem for dropping me off at home, not staying with me to help disclose to my mom that I'm being sexually abused. Mm. And had he been there, I I would have been able to tell my mom about the sex trafficking. Um, I never disclosed that to my mom. And that was hard because no one was there how can you leave a 14 year old child with no mental health professional no social worker a police officer left and dropped me off how do you leave a child alone to tell a parent in broken <laughs> broken spanish yeah that that i'm being molested yeah that's just It's, 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 and in Spanish, we don't have a word for molest.
0: Right. Molest
1: means to bother. Mm -hmm. Molestar means bothering. And I'm trying to tell my mom. And so for a long time, I blamed him as part of the problem as well. And so I'm learning how to give grace. And I've had to learn how to give grace and understand. I'm trying to live a life. I've tried to live a life of assuming positive intention always. And that um, if people knew how to help, they would have.
0: Well, and that's a problem in our country. Mental health is not addressed. It's very difficult to get help unless you have money, unless you have privilege. And even then, it's hard to get help. And I, I hope things are changing. I really, really do. But I don't feel very positive about it. I feel more resentment to toward our system you know toward you know whether it's religious or political or whatever it is Um, we need more help for our youth and especially now with you know after the shutdown kids are in trouble they're worried about the planet they're worried about covid you know there there's so many things that um, kids are facing these days that are bleak
1: I couldn't agree with you more. And one of my dreams is to build on my public speaking platform to speak with mental health professionals, social workers, to speak at conferences on this exact topic. I want to help you
0: do that. That's fucking awesome. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So needed.
1: One of the first times I spoke to, so I spoke at USC. Um, to the master's program students in social work and USC has one of the first bilingual programs um, in social work and I had some students they were crying in the audience and then they would come up to me afterward. no actually somebody asked a question about just how hard it was to hear my story once again, right? That being hard to listen or Mm -hmm. what made it hard. And one of the things I threw back at the, at the, at the group was you're going into this field. You're going to come across these issues, not from a perspective of someone that lived through it, but someone that's going through it. And you need, there's, there, there's, a, there, there's a strong need, a gap that needs to be filled on how do you approach a situation from a culturally humble lens, uh, gender affirming lens, and honoring the multilingual aspects that a lot of people in our community need from a therapist, yeah. from someone in the mental health field because it's expensive. I had someone text me this morning and said, oh my God, I, I, I love your audiobook. It's so different than reading it. And, and I, um, I've done internal family systems, IFS, I've done EMDR. Um, and my response was, yeah, that's amazing. EMDR, brain spotting, parts work, IFS, talk therapy. They've all helped me in my journey but it's expensive.
2: Yeah.
1: Kaiser is horrible when it comes to access to mental health. It takes a month to find an appointment. Yeah. It takes another month, month and a half to be able to to reschedule a follow-up appointment. If you need CBT or, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT or any type of modality that you're seeking, they oftentimes don't have individuals in-house with those types of training and those modalities. So you have to seek it elsewhere. And now you're talking 300 an hour. Right, right. So for those of us that are experiencing trauma, not even at the levels that I've gone through, but say someone that just wants to explore a different type of modality to address, to have a trauma-informed modality available to them, it's it's expensive, yeah, and we need to work on that as a society.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Healthcare, mental health care—I mean, it's lacking. <laughs> it's it's definitely a, an issue. Um, I want to take us to a moment when you first start going to city, and all of a sudden, you're learning things, and it's really <laughs> exciting. But you're also learning about. Sy- systemic racism and things that are put into place to hold people down. It, specifically, you talk about certain bills that are passed. We talk about the suburbs. Um, and there's one thing, I speak a little Spanish. I'm just gonna say not well. I'm not even gonna embarrass anyone. <laughs> but one thing I've always said is mande, right? Cause that's what I learned. Cause I learned how to speak Spanish with people from Tijuana. And when you said that monday me usted means order me. I was blown away. I was like, oh my God. Wow. And I just, just that one moment that I got to experience you learning about the world and and how it works was pretty awesome. And I appreciate you bringing us there. And I just want you to talk a little bit about how your brain was changing at that time when you started seeing the world around you.
1: First, I want to say that Especially those of us that are in recovery or those of us that are struggling with issues of addiction, depression, when given the opportunity to refocus all that energy, the stuff we have to go through and the stuff we have to do to support our habits, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're extremely intelligent individuals and for me that's why i love public speaking and motivating others to to uh (laughs) to move from you know surviving to thriving right? right that right um and i inspire others to stay in school it took me four years to get my associate's degree and one of those was beauty school cosmetology school at city san diego city college yeah and so you know, I, I, I'm speaking on Thursday tomorrow at Long Beach City College. I'd love to speak at San Diego City College. It hasn't been made possible. I've reached out to the administration there. I mean, I went there for four years. My dream is to inspire others, especially in community college, to keep going, to not give up. Yeah. Because um, what happened for me was as soon as I, st- little nerdy Jesse came back to life, <laughs> and right, yeah. I would ask questions, psychology of gender, psychology of space. Why do men take up so much space compared to women, right? You want yeah. to see your legs open. <laughs> and, and, and in a movie theater, you always have a, if you're going with your buddy to the movies, you have a, to leave a seat in between the both of you so y'all can spread out and um, <laughs> oh my gosh. And so my learning was taken just to a whole other level, but because I had instructors, I had professors that knew how to engage the students in community college that sadly I didn't get in high school.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That took the time to engage us. Jesse, what do you think about this? And it, it, it changed my life forever.
0: Yeah, indeed, it did.
1: Curious inquiry and and learning how to ask questions, research papers, going to the library and finding books, and writing papers on various topics like the pathologization of homosexuality and hit throughout history.
2: Yeah,
1: and and <laughs> yeah, I, I went there. Um, it, it it just <laughs> it was amazing. Reading books like James Baldwin. Maya Angelou, um, Victor Villaseñor, um, The House on Mango Street, just reading all these different books that just inspired me to believe that maybe one day I could do it too. Oh, my God, I'm going to cry.
0: Stories matter, right? They
1: matter. Because had you told me back then, when I'm 18 years old, 135 pounds, kicking crystal meth and heroin, having lived the life of the childhood that I did, that I would one day graduate from San Diego City College. Right. <laughs> that seems so far-fetched. Yeah, I, um, I went to beauty school, to cosmetology school, because I was afraid I'd have to drop out, mm-hmm. that maybe I couldn't make it. That maybe I couldn't graduate. So I had to learn a skill to hold me through. Right. And so, which was a blessing in and of itself that San Diego City College even offered that. But my community college counselors, the EOPS office, motivated me to stay in school. And then I, you know, full ride to Berkeley. Right. Living in Spain, living in Cuba. And then graduating and then getting a pretty much a full ride to Harvard. Yeah. That, you know, the world opened up mm. and it can open up for others too. I'm not unique. I'm not different. I just did the next indicated thing and followed direction. And I always shoot for the moon. You know, you shoot for the moon and. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll land on a star. Right.
0: It's a lot better
1: than what I've had in the past. So just living my best, trying to live my best life.
0: Tend your grass and shoot for the stars.
1: Yes. Yes, please. Yes. (laughs) You know that stars are balls of fire, right? Chad. (laughs) (laughs) You're hilarious. You're hilarious, Chad. Love it. millions can, of degrees
0: yeah. man <laughs> <laughs> that's what we need we need to be on fire for life right and and this book does that jesse you you've lit a fire and i just thank you so much for writing this book for having i don't, I don't know maybe people get a, don't like to hear this but having the courage to write it like to me telling your story so openly and so honestly like it must have taken some courage
1: it did and thank you for saying that it does not bother me when people say that at all because it does take courage and that courage other people help me find Mm. yes and courage comes from within other people just being alongside me on my journey
2: yeah
1: and when they listen to this they know who they are nope. i couldn't have done it without them yeah and and i do it to inspire others we all have a story within right tell yeah. your story you never know <laughs> how it's going to impact someone else
0: just start writing
1: just start writing some of the wisest words i heard by an author named malin alegría hmm. And I was struggling with how would I get started? I tried post-its. I tried <laughs> outlines. I try, I would reach out to other authors and I'd get angry that very few reached back out to give me guidance on how to start writing. And then one day, Malina Alegria, author of a book called Quinceanera, she said, you know what, Jesse, you need to quit asking so many people, like how to start writing and just start writing. <laughs> just You'll know when you're done. Yeah. It's so true, right? right. I knew when I was done.
0: Nice. Well, you're not done. You've got more books to write, (laughs) a lot of stories to tell, and a lot of hearts to touch. I feel grateful for you, and um, thank you. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a little (laughs) emotional just because I know. I mean, I have people in my my family who need your story, and I know people who needs your story and and it's hard to accept that there is hope and you can have faith. But when you hear that someone else did it, it changes things.
1: Thank you. I had a friend, I had, well, someone I met recently through a professional Latino um, networking event. And it's always funny when people ask you, so what do you do? And I can go down the path of, uh, <laughs> right. oh, I manage impact investments and philanthropic grant making for foundations, family offices, and high net worth individuals. And I can keep it there. As soon as I say, oh, I'm an author and a public speaker and an executive coach. Nice. Oh, you wrote a book. What's your <laughs> book about? <laughs> oh, wow. It's a book of hope. It's a book of strength. It's a book of resilience to inspire others to not give up. Nice. Yeah, but, but, but what's it about? <laughs> It's about from going from the hood to Harvard. Oh wow! Well, what made your book so you know so special compared to another Harvard student? Then I'm like, oh god, here we go. And you don't want to be the buzzkill at <laughs> at a at a social gathering, right? A networking event. And then you say, well, it's my journey of being sex trafficked, uh, drugged, and you know the life I lived of being a sexually exploited child on the streets from 14 to 18 and my journey of finding hope and (laughs) changing my life and others changing my life and my journey to graduating from Harvard and then it changes yeah so I had this one person call me actually he wrote me a long email to say we come from very different backgrounds but I'm also Latino. I love the, the stories of family and how you brought that into your book. But your book got me thinking so much. I got home, I hugged my wife, I hugged my teenage sons, and I just cried with them. And I told them, thank you. And, nice. and you, you shifted my perspective hmm. and how I need to show a little bit more love to my family and those that mattered to me. Wow, and it's moments (laughs) like that.
2: Yeah,
1: that yes, maybe my book hasn't sold a million copies. Maybe I'm not, you know, on on some bestseller list. It's it's the impact that I'm having, and that's the not that I'm having that my words are having. Yeah, that is um, that's beautiful.
0: It is beautiful, absolutely. I I want to tell our listeners that they have an opportunity to see you speak at TEDx San Diego on June 11th the Conrad Previs and La Jolla. tickets are sold out, but they can still get tickets to see the virtual. And I think everyone listening should. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you decided to get on the TEDx San Diego stage?
1: <laughs> so I do love public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, and I love being an executive coach. I love it when people when I see people have these aha moments. When you see people go from a dark place to a place of hope within just, just within a conversation, right. Or within a talk where, where, where people's perspective shifts, people's perspectives shift. And, um, I forgot who said it once miracles are a shift in perception. And, and that's very true for me. So I, there was a reader who I had lunch with uh locally and she just encouraged me she sent me the link and said I've heard your podcasts I've heard you speak I think you should apply
2: nice and very cool I,
1: I, I've always wanted to do a TEDx but I wanted to do it on you know educational equity racial justice um leadership Philanthropy. (laughs) And and I wanted to utilize this platform to be able to destigmatize talking about sex abuse and sex trafficking, at least from a male perspective. We don't talk about it. And we definitely don't talk about it in communities of color. And I wanted to inspire others to know that they're not alone. Nice. And that we do go from, for all the other survivor survivor leaders out there, people that have experienced addiction, sex trafficking, sex abuse, that we do become, we are amazing human beings. We, the world can open up. We do go from living in trauma to being triumphant. Amen. And and I wanted to tell that story to break taboos. Yeah. And destigmatize something that gets rarely talked about.
0: Well, I look forward to it. I will be in the audience. Um, there might be some tickets. I I could be wrong. Maybe there's a couple of tickets left. So if you're hearing this, definitely get yourself to TEDx San Diego on June 11th.
1: I'm sure someone's trying to double their price on StubHub. You think
0: there's scalpers for, yeah, for TEDx sure. San Diego?
1: Yeah, there were actually, there was, there, there were a few of them that had to get shut down. There were, there were some scalpers out there. Really? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I heard about it, but, uh. Um, Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we can't have anything nice. That's right.
0: We actually went to a concert. Chad got to go see They Might Be Giants for $9. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. My ticket was 55. Chad's was 11 with fees. yeah
1: four dollars for the ticket but the rest was all fees for Ticketmaster. apparently scalpers
0: yeah bought so many that they just had to blow them out the day before anyway oh wow that's not going to happen for tedx it's not going to be (laughs) nine (laughs) dollars
1: the day before um i think they're 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 working on a community um community viewing for the uh the run through um, mm. I'm not sure, but maybe some more information on that will be made available soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, at the very least, uh, the streaming is going to be powerful. It's going to be an awesome day. They've got wonderful speakers, many of which we're having here on The Premise, which I'm excited to continue interviewing. And Jesse, you've just been so wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and for telling your story.
1: Jennifer, thank you. And and Chad, thank you also. Um, for having me, for hosting me today. It's it's beautiful when I have people in my hometown uh, believing in me mm. and, and wrapping their arms around me as you did, Jennifer. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. You can learn more about Jesse Leon on his website, jesseleonauthor.com. You can also follow Jesse on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jesseleonauthor. This has been another episode of The Premise. Please follow The Premise on Twitter at @podpremise. Actually, you know what? Forget Twitter. Don't follow us on Twitter. <laughs> I think I mean,
1: you're <laughs> done with that crap. I, I,
0: we're done with Twitter. I'm I'm very mad at Twitter. Um, but do subscribe and rate us everywhere you get podcasts. We're there. It helps spread the word. Tell people about this interview with Jesse Leon, people. We really appreciate you and you listening and you can visit us online at the again rate us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts until next time thank you for listening goodbye
1: goodbye goodbye